0: On Sunday mornings, we've been going through the Book of Acts since uh, September (laughs) um, with the students. And this is just the next lesson in our series. Um, And I thought it'd be great to just bring you guys along with what we've been learning and what I've been teaching them back there. It was easier for me. And uh, this is such a sweet passage. I'm really excited to get the chance to, uh, to share it with all of you guys. But before we get into that, I want to bring you guys up to speed a little bit on the background of Acts and of the current main character, which is the Apostle Paul. We're going to get to Acts 20 in a bit, but before that, it's, it's, it's a lot of background because there's a lot of background needed with this passage. What we're going to get to later is Paul, meeting with the Ephesian elders for the last time face-to-face, made a special stop in Miletus. They came 20 miles to come see him and... He had this beautiful thing to say to them. But in order to fully understand that, we have to understand Paul, at least in part, and the Ephesian elders, at least in part, and their relationship, at least in part. People have written books about the Apostle Paul and should continue writing books about the Apostle Paul, and I'm not going to read you a book this morning. So we're going to briefly cover some of this stuff before we get to the text today. So Acts is part two of the book of Luke, which we recently just finished. Uh, in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke says this about why he wrote it. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And then in Acts 1.1, he talks about how the first thing he wrote was about Jesus and his ministry. Dr. Luke is writing this to his friend Theophilus, not so that he will learn, but so that he will be fully convinced of the things that he had been taught. He knew the story of Jesus in the the first 30 years of the church, which is really what Acts is. It's a history of the first 30 years of the church. He knew it, but Luke endeavored to compile eyewitness accounts and facts and details and histories. He investigated and interviewed so that Theophilus would have no doubt. What a wonderful purpose, especially for us as we're reading this. You can fact check Luke. That's one of the most beautiful things about the word of god it is it is not vague and it's not missing detail or facts that you can go back and examine this is historical truth that we study and it's just beautiful absolutely beautiful main characters of the book of acts is first the holy spirit it's the holy spirit coming into the hearts of the church and all those who believe coming with power and not just coming with power to those who believe but coming with power to the three different spiritual groups of people there were the gentiles the Jews, and then the Samaritans, which are kind of the the mix. Um, But the Holy Spirit comes with power for the first Jews who believed and the first Gentiles that believed, the first Samaritans who who believed, and and to, to prove that salvation was coming to absolutely everybody. The beginning of Acts focuses on the apostles and what they're doing. Peter is a main character in the beginning. That first sermon in the day of Pentecost, he preached to 4,000 people, gave their lives to the Lord. And just a side note, I love that sermon so much because he doesn't give them any solution. He just says, you guys are sinners, and Jesus was wonderful. And, and he came back from the dead, and you guys killed him. And they're like, what do we do? He's like, repent. It's just beautiful that he just, he, he tells them the truth, and their hearts are broken over the truth of what had happened. And they're crying out for an answer, and he gives it to them, which is just wonderful. Um, And then finally, uh, at about chapter 8, the focus starts switching to this new guy, Saul, later Paul, because Jesus changes everybody's names. And again, it's about the first 30 years of the church, and salvation coming to all, and the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now let's focus on Saul a little bit. This guy's life, I, I gotta tell you, is just something else. He was born in a time when the Roman Empire was strong, controlling, and uh, well-organized. There was a citizenship um, that was different than the way we are citizens nowadays. Paul was born, and I might use the the names Paul and Saul interchangeably. I'm going to try and keep it accurate to the timeline, but that's just not going to happen entirely. So just bear with me there. Saul, Paul, interchangeable. But he was born a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus. Uh, which, which wasn't Rome, but he was born because of his family as a Roman citizen. And this was a huge deal, almost a higher status than someone who would pay or earn their citizenship. Soldiers, at a certain point, earned citizenship, but you could also pay a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. But he was born a Roman citizen by birth. He was also born a Jew, and his father circumcised him on the eighth day, raised him to bay, followed the law. And just like every good Jewish boy at the time— Probably went to the local rabbi and was educated there in the basics of the law and scriptures. But then Paul continued. Paul continued uh, beyond just that basic education into, his, in, in, into a school, a, phar- uh, a Pharisee school, pretty much. His mentor was Gamaliel, and he was one of the most no- well-known and respected Pharisees at the time. This was a big deal. So just to recap, Saul... Born a Roman citizen, born a Jew, an educated Jew, who went on to go to the, the, the best school, really, that you could if your target was the temple, which his was. Hard worker, smart. He followed his tr- father, He followed the tradition of the day and learned his father's trade, which was tent making. But he also followed the patriarchal footsteps of his family in becoming a Pharisee, which, which that word carries a lot of baggage, doesn't it? We, we read through... Luke and the other gospels, and we we don't get a a really rosy picture of Pharisees. But really the word just means set apart. Remove all the baggage for just a second and put your mind, put your, try to put your mind in, in through the eyes of a Pharisee, someone who has spent their entire life studying the scriptures, memorizing as much of it as they possibly can, working every single day, repetition, repetition, repetition of understanding the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures, working towards being set apart as a teacher, an expert in the law. That is a passion and a zeal for God's law. That was Paul's upbringing, a single-minded focus and passion for the things of Scripture and the law of God. Yes, it was broken in a lot of ways. And a lot of them, and there was a, a, a pandemic of teaching as tradition the, the doctrines of men, or teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. And yes, there were things broken, but I wanted you to see just a moment exactly what his whole target was. That kind of focus on the law of God is not bad. What happened to it was bad. But this was Paul's ambition and his career. His family line was full of Pharisees, and his whole life centered on the study of the law, and he was successful. He was successful. He was there when the Jewish leaders stoned the first follower of the way, Stephen, the first martyr for the name of Christ. He was there. He was there. And after that, in Acts 8.3, it says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. After that, he attacked the way, seeing it as a threat to the, the sanctity of their tradition and passion for the law of God. And he had authority to put people in prison, which is a big deal as a young Pharisee. He was knowledgeable, a good family, Roman citizen, educated by a most well-respected Pharisee at the time, and rising in the ranks of the Pharisee. This was an impressive young man. His passion led to recognition in the form of a recommendation to go to Damascus to arrest followers of what was then called the way there in Damascus and bring him back to Jerusalem. And, and, and we hopefully know the story then of what happened on his way to Damascus. All of his life focused on this one thing. He's a project leader. He's got his own task force. He's rising in the ranks. He's recognized well before his time as a wunderkind in the temple, and on his way to Damascus, Jesus knocks him off his high horse, blinds him, and makes him totally dependent on others, having to be led around by the hand because he's blind. He goes into Damascus and spends three days fasting and praying. Ananias comes and, and, and tells him what God said about his future mission and suffering. And what a wonderful picture of how God saves all of us, right? Blind and desperate is how we are, uh, is, is the state we're in when we meet Jesus, and I want you to know something special about Paul then, because after that, he did not go back to Jerusalem. He did not go back to his job. He did not go back to his people. He didn't even go find the disciples at first. He just wanted to go and know Jesus. So he went into the deserts of Arabia and studied with Jesus. And I don't know if you've, um, if you've looked into this part of the life of Paul, but let me read you a section about Paul in his ministry. In Galatians 1, he defends his ministry to the Galatian church, and this is what he writes about himself. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was, by, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor I was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. Among my countrymen, "'being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. "'But when God, who had set me apart "'even from my mother's womb "'and called me through His grace, "'was pleased to reveal His Son in me "'so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, "'I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, "'nor did I go up to Jerusalem "'to those who were apostles before me, "'but I went away into Arabia "'and returned once more to Damascus. "'Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem, "'became acquainted with Cephas, "'and stayed with him fifteen days.' But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you that before God I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. He left his entire life's work and ambition and career Behind to pursue Christ. He left it all behind. He stayed in Tarsus for about nine years because he was chased out of Jerusalem for preaching the name of Christ. And he was in Jerusalem because he was chased out of Damascus for preaching the name of Christ. And he stayed in Tarsus as his hometown preaching, probably because he probably couldn't help it, because that's Paul, right? Until Barnabas came and picked him up and started taking him on missionary journeys. He went on a journey with Barnabas. And then he heard about Pharisees who were teaching that circumcision was required for salvation. And he went with Peter and Barnabas up to Jerusalem and they argued about just one of the most crucial aspects of the gospel in the early church are works required. Is obeying the law required or has God fulfilled that? Put the book up on the shelf and said, that was good and wonderful. We're doing this now though. <laughs> and he argued with them and he was part of that discussion against his former brothers and colleagues, these Pharisees, of which he was a part of, a rising star. He went on another journey, planting and encouraging churches, and on his third journey, he traveled to Ephesus. When he got there, he met 12 men who were baptized into John's baptism of repentance but didn't know about Jesus and what he had done, didn't know about the the baptism you get after being regenerated and renewed, the baptism of the Spirit, and so he baptized those men and lay his hands on them. They received the Spirit of God. And then he did what he did on all ministry, all, all mission trips, As he went and taught in the synagogue. He did this for three months in Ephesus, and was completely frustrated. He did this for three months. Acts 19.9 says, But some were be- becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. He withdrew from them and took away his disciples took away the disciples, not his disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He went to his brothers and was rejected and cast out. And so he went to the Gentiles in the school of Tyrannus. And there they found good soil. The gospel there just exploded and the church was growing and it, dis- it totally disrupted the local economy of idol worship. In, there in Ephesus, they had one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana or Artemis, depending if you're Greek or Roman, they could fit, I think it was 25,000 people in this temple. And there was a huge local economy based on this temple. They were a port town. And so people came through all the time. And this was what the local, the, think Salt Lake City. There, how that whole town revolves, literally even the streets of Salt Lake City, all are concentric circles around the temple. Think Ephesus, only not in the middle of the desert on a coast town. The gospel was exploding so much that there was a riot in the streets because the idol makers were losing money. At one point, the magicians burned, I think it was 20,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books because of what they had learned about the gospel and forsaking your old life and turning to Jesus from this man who had forsaken his old life and turned to Jesus. And this man who saw Paul, who had grown up with a prejudice against Gentiles, is now exclusively teaching at the school of Tyrannus to Gentiles and seeing the fruit of the gospel for those people who are needy for it. He spent over two years in Ephesus with these people. And at the end of the two years, there was a riot in Ephesus. And uh, it was around that time that he, he took off And then leading up to our passage for today, I just want to make a note about Acts. Acts is 28 chapters, and it covers the first 30 years of the church. That's a pretty quick clip, right? That's a pretty quick pace. And in verses 13 through 16, we see months of traveling, months of traveling. We're going ahead to the ships that sail for Asos, um, and then they went to Asos and Mytilene, and they went to Chios, the next day over to Samos, and then they came to Miletus, they, there's a lot of traveling here, and then the pace slows way down. I want you to read one more, th- read one more thing. This is verse 16, get a running start to our passage. And this tells us Paul's current plans, which is important to realize this next step in what he feels about these Ephesian elders. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He was hurrying to Jerusalem to make it for Pentecost. And I imagine that based on how long he spent in Ephesus and based on the book of Ephesians, which I don't have time to talk about the book of Ephesians today, but it is a, a most special epistle. He's not correcting doctrine, he's not defending his ministry. He's writing about the grace of God and life with him to fellow believers, people he loved, loves and spent years ministering with. That's a whole nother sermon and book series. <laughs> but he's hurrying on. He stops at Miletus, which is about 20 miles away from Ephesus, and he calls the Ephesian elders to him. From Miletus, this is verse 17 now. I'm going to read 17 through 38. And I just could not divide this passage. So we're going to take it all on this morning. hope you're all right with that. At least it's cool in here. From Eletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Oh, I forgot to mention that uh, 20 miles away and he's hurrying to, the day, to, to, Pentecost, to Jerusalem for Pentecost. This was worth the wait. This is worth the delay. This is the pit stop, a worthy pit stop in his rushing plans. Non-negotiable in Paul's mind, I imagine, in his plans, no matter how quick he wants to get there. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know, that, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify you, to this day, uh, testify you to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that he would not see his face, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to his ship. Background over, before we get into this, let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much we, uh, about what we learned from the lives of these people who met you and were so faithful to deliver your word despite hardship and trial and tears and persecution. Their perseverance to serve you and your church is inspirational, God, but deeper than that, it's convicting because they had no regrets, only joy, only excitement to see you. God, I want that, and I want that for all of us. Speak to us with your word today, Father God. We love you. Amen. It slows down the pace of Acts to give us this whole address to the Ephesian elders. These men, probably the 12 men he had laid his hands on to give the Holy Spirit to when he first arrived in Ephesus. These men who had been with him the whole time, as he said, watching him and the way he lived and ministered in Ephesus. Service to Christ and his church defined Paul's life. Absolutely. Leaving behind everything of his former life just to serve God. He endured so much, but considered it so much joy to keep serving. It defined his life. But an important note there at the beginning uh, in, in verse um, 19, he said, serving the Lord, that, that master of his is what empowered his ministry. That's the authority behind his servanthood, not for his own sake, but for his master's sake. And then in 18, verses 18 through 21, just like Paul, he gives us a giant run-on sentence. Those three verses are just one sentence, and they are rich. You could write volumes on, on just these three verses. I got 13 things that define Christian service based on the life of Paul. So we're going to go these through, the, through these things. Um, and it's just so exciting to read. These are wonderful. And, and the reason it's so exciting, because this man... This man shows us what it's like to, to live according to the Holy Spirit through his power and the authority of God. If Paul can do it, you can do it. If Paul can do it, you can do it. And that's the conviction, but that's also the inspiration. So first, looking at verse 19. Uh, so first 18 sets it up, the beginning of that sentence, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all Humility. This one's obvious when you compare who we are with God, but it's really tough to walk out. It's really tough to walk out. You guys ever seen uh, guys trying to organize a room? It's a lot of chiefs and not a lot of Indians, right? Everybody's got their own idea. It's like crowding around the grill. Oh yeah, look at that. You got to flip that one. Oh, make sure this one doesn't burn. A lot of ideas because it's human nature to want to be in charge. Part of the curse was that men would lord over their authority over women and women would buck against it. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. But you got to remember, we serve the Lord. It is His plan. Serving with humility. Serving with humility. And kind of part and parcel with that is this next facet of serving the Lord. We serve with humility, but with tears. With tears. Paul preached the gospel, reasoning and persuading in the synagogue to his ethnic and ethnic brothers and former colleagues to no avail. At one point he said, he would rather be accursed. Let, him, let me be accursed rather than these guys. He loved them so much. There are tears, a brokenness for the lost, uh, for the lost. His passion for people is so clear. This is not just a job for him. He wants people to be found as he was found. He wants people's lives to be radically changed as his life was radically changed. And he cries over it. He weeps over it. How amazing would it be if we all had that same brokenness for the lost? That just brokenness for people who are not believers. And with that comes trials. This is different than temptation. This is different than temptation. This is trials. Trials come with a purpose. He says the, the, the local Jewish leaders were the cause of his trials, but let me bring you to James 1. James 1, 2-4 tells us something very important about trials. I'm sure you've heard it before, but the end of this is essential to understanding why it is necessary in our service to Christ. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And don't forget, James, the brother of Jesus, was one of the first disciples Paul ever met. James got it, Paul got it. Let endurance have its perfect result so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That takes trials. So humility, tears, um, trials, it takes courage. It takes courage. Look with me, uh, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything. There is courage necessary to serve Christ. Courage, not shrinking back, but pressing forward always. The message of the gospel is confrontational. It's not the gospel if you take out sin and our need for a Savior. It's confrontational. But beyond that, living a godly life must look different than the overwhelming majority in our world. It must look different. That takes courage. It takes courage to press on when trials and tears abound. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything was possible. It's not just courage, but it's courage to live an exhausting and exhaustive life. From declaring to you anything that was profitable. But with that are two other points. Uh, there's preaching, um, anything that is, a, uh, that is profitable to the church. But preaching here, um, and this is important to know because teaching comes later, and preaching and teaching are different. There are two very different words used for these. Um, and the word preaching can also be uh, uh, translated as declaring, which is what it says right here. Um, I do not shrink from declaring to you. Your translation might say proclaiming. It might say preaching, depending on um, how they translate it, but that's that same thing, Um, and I just want to encourage you, for those of you who are saying to yourselves, but I'm not a preacher, that's fine. God knows you're not a preacher. If you're called to be a preacher, you'll be a preacher, but you do need to declare the gospel, That is a non-negotiable in the life of a believer. Preaching. Preaching anything that is a benefit to the church. And that sounds exhausting, like I said, uh, but it's a good thing the Holy Spirit never experiences burnout, right? Right? Okay. That's just one of my favorite things about him. You're going to serve God. He's always got what you need. And then teaching. Uh, Look with me. Let's read verse 20 and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. So there's preaching, which is the, in the Greek, anagelo, and then there is teaching, which is didasko. So think about it this way. Preaching is like the newspaper article. Teaching is like the book on the same topic. There's the proclamation, the announcement of what is happening. Hey, extra, extra, read all about it. This is breaking news. You have to hear this. And then there's teaching. Now that you've heard this problem, let me unpack it for you in detail. The nooks and crannies of thought and detail. There's preaching and teaching. And that teaching was public and visible as well as house to house. A couple more points of service. There is a public ministry with this. He was not just a pulpiteer in the church. He was not just a church house Christian. It wasn't just when they were there that he was a Christian. He was out in the city. He was out and about in town, persuading people publicly. He was also house to house. As we are called to make disciples, this is where we will find ourselves teaching. If you are making disciples and following the Great Commission, which says make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, you will be teaching just like Jesus told you to. That explaining, unpacking, making sure this person that you are discipling and teaching understands what is happening, and that's in conjunction with, with what's being preached on Sunday and their own personal um, personal study of the word. But sh- Paul is showing us everything that it takes to serve God holy, holy with a with an H, um, uh, with a W W H. Visible, public, relational, house to house, private. Not everyone here will teach publicly, and that's fine. But as we are called to be dis- disciple-makers, will, it will require us unpacking the truth of God's word to people. Next, verse 21. He says, Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's solemnly testifying, and I know I'm getting picky with these words, but there's just so much here. Paul is so great at packing in so much. It's like Russian literature, where every sentence is like a chapter long. Anyway, um, he says testify, and there's a Greek word that's really cool, and I had it, I knew how to pronounce it last night, but I don't now. Um, But it it literally can mean to bear witness like in a trial. You put your hand in the Bible, you you raise your right hand, and you promise to tell the truth. But more colloquially, It can mean to warn or tell in all seriousness, sometimes translated as witness or charge. This is not a passive word. This is a solemn word, a passionate word of testifying, not being necessarily asked to testify, but solemnly charging and witnessing. And about what? His passion is based on, is is going towards what? Is going towards an unbiased, unwavering urging of people towards faith. The first aspect, unbiased. I want to remind you of Paul's background as a Pharisee. There was massive contempt towards Gentiles as being unclean, not the people of God, unable to please God, fully separate. But he did not. Uh, he did not hang on to that, because there is not a people group excluded from the love and service of one serving the Lord. Personal prejudice against people is based in sin and needs to be rooted out to better serve the Lord. The gospel is available to all, and so should we as servants of Christ. And Paul, in an unbiased way, and unwavering in his teaching of repentance, his passion in testifying to all people included that need to repent. And that message never, ever changed when it encountered resistance, trials, persecutions, even when it was dangerous, to the point he was stoned um, and dragged out of the city like he was dead, and the next day he went back into that city. This is this is this is Paul, unwavering. And this should be us. Lives built on the rock of Jesus, unwavering, urging faith, urging faith. Um, I don't know if they'd like it if I said it, if I said it, their name out loud. But I heard a story of one of the one of our saints here that worships with us. At one point in their lives grabbed their son by the shoulder, shook them, and said, you need to believe in Jesus. Oh, I love that so much. Man, that's, like, that's what we should be. Desperate for people to believe in Jesus. Shaking them by the shoulders when necessary. Open your eyes. Jesus wants to save you. It is so much better than this. Forsake your life. Look at me. I did it. I haven't looked back. Urging. People to turn from sin and not just turn from sin because that's impossible without faith. They work together. Faith and repentance. They're both gifts from God. We are granted repentance just as we're granted faith. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, grace and faith, those are gifts from God. We can't boast about any of it. Urging people, unwrap your gift from God. Unwavering. Unbiased. Urging people towards faith and repentance. So, 18 through 21, after his super Pauline run-on sentence about his past ministry, again, a proper exposition of which could fill an entire book, he moves on in his address to talk about future ministry. But before we do that, let me review these things real quick, just in case there's any really particular note-takers in here. Service requires humility, leads to tears and brokenness, to trials it needs courage. It takes being willing to preach and proclaim, to be a benefit to the church in every way possible. Teaching, unpacking the truth of Scripture, living publicly and visible, but being relational and personable, create making disciples and training them to obey Jesus. It takes passion, an unbiased, unwavering urging of people towards faith. This is Christian service. Now, an important note before we continue. Paul is speaking to the elders of the church. But I want you to understand that this is not just for elders because it's not just elders who are supposed to serve Jesus, right? I saw 11 nods, but that's okay. I'll move on. <clears throat> we are all supposed to serve Christ. I'll just give you the answer there. Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This is for the whole church. This is for the whole church. So let's look. let's look here. Verse 22, moving on. And he says, And now behold. Guys, look it. That's what he's saying. Now listen up. Listen up. That's, you know all this. You know all this. They were with him. They saw him. He's run through the highlights of his life with Christ in, in their presence. He says, look at here. Look at here. Bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me. Do you guys notice that same phrase from verse 21? Solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Heads up, guys, listen. I'm constrained in my spirit, I am bound in my spirit. Now, as I was studying this, I encountered a, a problem. As I was looking at the different translations, different translations capitalized the S in spirit here. Um, now behold, bound by the spirit, that word, the spirit. Um, there was a bit of confusion in translations. But it was, is, it, is it talking about the spirit of God or Paul's spirit within him? Uh, I couldn't find a solid answer. I personally lean towards the Holy Spirit in him. But let me explain to you why it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, and I won't say that a lot about... Um, about translating scripture. Matt, don't sweat. Um, but let me explain. Let me explain. Const- constrained by the Spirit regarding his future plans. <clears throat> Following the Holy Spirit characterized Paul's ministry repeatedly in the book of Acts. He, he felt called by the Spirit to go here, to go there, not to go here. He tells the Romans, I, I've tried to come to you guys, but the Spirit has stopped me. He was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. It could easily be the Holy Spirit inside him. That is his guide, his compass, his map, his motor, his everything. He's just a passenger. How wonderful. And that is accurate as we see Paul's life and his radical change. But if it is his personal spirit, what has constrained that? What has bound his spirit? It could only be the Spirit of God, right? So whether he's talking about his spirit inside him being constrained by the Holy Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit constraining him direct, more directly, we get to the same result, that his demonstrated purpose in everything he did was to serve the church as an apostle of Christ and as empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. So of course his spirit, his personal spirit, would be constrained by the Spirit of God, which is another aspect of someone who is serving God wholeheartedly, constrained by the Spirit. That being constrained by the Spirit frees him up from this future that he sees. Not the details of which, the only details he knows about, about, his, future, about his future in ministry is that he's going to be uh, imprisoned and afflicted. He's going to be imprisoned and afflicted, and he's not bothered by it. He's constrained by the Spirit of God. He is a servant of a master, and the master says, Go, go just like a true son of Abraham. Not just an ethnic son of Abraham as a Jew, but, uh, well, I, I guess there's some talk about whether Abraham was a Jew because the full law. We don't need to get into that. Um, but as a son of faith, Abraham was called the father of faith. You're, you, you know that song, Father Abraham had many sons. You know, I am one of them and so are you. Head, I know, right? And that's another shameless plug for um, student and children's ministry. Uh <laughs> true son of Abraham, when God spoke to Abram and said, go, not going to tell you where, but go. Leave the land of your fathers where you've lived for 10 generations and go. Abram said, okay, God, faith has feet. And when God said, kill your son, Abram raised the knife against his own son because he trusted what God had said more than what his eyes could see. Faith has feet. Paul is constrained by the Spirit knowing what his purpose in life is, and so he's unwavering, unafraid, knowing that the, no, no, uh, even though that the only thing he knows is going to happen is going to be imprisoned and afflicted. Wow. Wow. He's going to show them, he's going to show them that nothing, uh, he's going to show them that compared to serving Christ, nothing else matters. It is the highest goal the highest goal. All of this so far is about service to Christ. All of it. That's what Paul's life was all about, a servant of the Lord. Servant of the Lord. And then there's this, and this is just so exciting to think about and challenging in my own heart. He says this, but I do not consider, this is verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that, I may, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly, testify solemnly again, testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Serving, the God. serving God is the most important thing, the most valuable thing in Paul's life, more so than his own self. Just as Jesus taught John 12, 25, he says, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he says, not precious to myself, Who is it precious to? It's precious as long as he is useful to the kingdom of God. He pushes forward. He is not done with his race. He's got more to do. As long as he's got breath, he's going to be running. Nor is precious to myself. He is serving God, and a useful, good servant works to please their master as long as possible. He looked back on his life of serving Christ and looked forward to what God will do to show them the joys of a life with him and the security of our hope. He talks about finishing his course and how excited he is to do that. That, that phrase appears one other time in the word of God and it's later when he's writing to Timothy. Um, Timothy then is the pastor of the Ephesian church and he writes this in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This is near the end of his life. Near the end of his life. And he writes this again in 2 Timothy 4 8, Uh, again to 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 the now pastor of the Ephesian church. The result of this faithful ministry Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. That excited anticipation of meeting the Lord, you can just see it. It's not walking the race, it's running the race to the end, to the prize. Paul is not going to retire from ministry at the end of this. He does not going to get to a sort of finish line and then just say, Oh man, that was a great life in ministry. Whew. I'm excited. Boca tone. here I come. He's going to serve God until his final breath, because he wants to. He needs to. That's his mission in life. That's his purpose. And there's nothing better than rewards of serving Christ. Nothing better. He's got a goal in mind, and that's eternal reward. Let me read again, John 12:25. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And again, let me read from uh, a highlight from uh, 2 Timothy 4:8 which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He is ready. He is ready. There is no such thing as retiring from Christian service except when we get to meet Jesus face to face. That's the finish line. That's where the prize is. You don't award uh, um, runners their trophies halfway through the race, right? And then he moves forward and says once again, verse 25, and now behold, Once again, he he re-grabs their attention with a behold. Heads up, guys. Look at there. Look at here. I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. He's never going to see them again. He knows it. The Spirit's told him. And he's ready. This is why he's stopping to talk to them these special men in his life, hurrying to, hurrying to Jerusalem for Pentecost, stops and waits for a servant to rush to Ephesus 20 miles and grab the elders and come 20 miles to meet him in Miletus to give him this address. Guys, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And then he says, verse 26, therefore, therefore, therefores are so important in the word of God because if you read therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. Um, but all of this, talking about the value and the importance and the passion of Christian service, is coming to a time of a bit of instruction for these guys. Paul's faithfulness is to deliver the whole counsel of God. Or as it says, um, uh, Therefore I testify to you the verse 20, in verse 26, This day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. He is saying to them, guys, this way I have lived has left me innocent of negligence. I didn't shrink back. I didn't get afraid. I didn't change my tune when things got hard. I pursued with passion the lost. I declared the whole counsel of God. And now I can say I am innocent. I have done my bit. I haven't dropped the ball. Man, To get to the end of a life and be able to say that, his faithfulness to deliver the whole counsel of God meant that he had no blood on his hands. With no regard to his upbringing, his former ambitions, or his way of life, he preached the whole counsel of God to a congregation of ethnic Gentiles. So how can you be innocent as a leader, as a Christian? Be faithful to the whole counsel of God. Be faithful to what the Word of God preaches and teaches. Above all else, serve Christ with humility, tears, trials, courage, with preaching, exhausting yourself by doing good, teaching, with visible teaching and a life spent visibly serving God, by by teaching in relationships and making disciples through passion, by having an unbiased, unwavering urge, to get people to repent and believe in Jesus, to have faith in Christ. And for three years, almost three years, Paul showed the Ephesian church that. He showed them those traits, those 13 traits of faithful service. That That is what is required to then fulfill what he tells them in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Whose flock is this? It is God's flock, and he died for them. And it's the elder's job to protect that which Christ died for. Now, sheep, listen, because this warning is for you too. Shepherds protect the sheep, but who's the victim of wolves? It's the sheep. Mm. Listen to the teaching on the whole word of God, on the whole counsel of God. You'll be more, you'll be able to recognize a wolf when you understand. When you are serving God and reading His word and living a faithful life, you will know a wolf. You will be able to tell that's just a sheep suit. These wolves will come from among them, which is why it's so important to serve with humility and chasing after the word of God. Not yourself, when it's about yourself you you don't recognize the wolves because you might accidentally be becoming a wolf you rec- listen to the whole the teaching and the whole counsel, counsel of god understanding that not everyone around you is a sold out servant of christ is important because how much more important then is it for you to live that godly life publicly and from house to house in relationships with these other believers showing them an example of service and the blessings that come with exhausting yourself for the cause of Christ. Take the warning. Don't let yourself waver from the truth. Savage wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. And, not, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after him. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears again. Crying, crying, passionate for these people, serving God and exhausting Himself to do it. He is showing us once again that faithful service, tireless ministry, the tears and personal risk are worth it. The grace of God and His Word will build you up. As He continues, and now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is the treasure. That is the treasure. That thing which can truly build you up and reward you for eternally, reward you eternally. That is the treasure. That's the pearl of great price that someone was searching for and sold everything to find. That's the treasure in the field that someone wasn't searching for but encountered and realized its worth and sold everything to get it. Paul is sold out. And he he commends them to God and to the word of his grace. And he goes on to say this, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I didn't care about that stuff. Read that. There is this inheritance to those who are sanctified, and then there's silver, gold, and clothes. Who cares about this? I've got this. Who cares about that shiny, wonderful, rising in the ranks, tons of future promotion opportunities in this old life I had? Forget it. I'm here. This is better. I don't regret anything. I'm just going to push on on this race, this course. I've got a job to do. I don't care about that. I worked with my own hands. He goes on to say in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs. As a tent maker, that trade he learned from his father, he kept that. He rejected the pharisaical living and kept the tent making to work hard to support himself. Not greedy for money, but just so desperate to serve the body of Christ that it's worth having two jobs as a pastor, an elder, and as a tent maker working hard, ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Serving God is satisfying in a way money could never be and is worth following Jesus' example of pouring himself out for the blessings of others. Therein lies the eternal reward. It is more blessed to give than receive. On my uh, way in today, I remembered and just had to include this. Um, John Piper, a faithful preacher, um, in the year 2000, May 20th, was they were having a conference called Passion. And if, if any preacher can be said to have passion, if you ever listen to John Piper... This guy has passion. He Pounds his fists and yells and waves his arms on him. This day, uh, the wind blew his sermon notes off and he slammed it, slammed it down and saved the right half of his notes, he said, but the left half was gone and he was just desperate for the Lord's help in finishing this message to people. And he said this during this sermon uh, that has stuck with me. Maybe you've heard it, but I'm going to read to you. Um, uh, this is an excerpt from an article, so there's a little bit more commentary than what he preached there, but... This, this is what Paul knows and lived. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement partnering up with Ruby, she was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes gave way. Over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? The crowd knew the answer, calling out, no, it is not a tragedy, Piper affirmed. I'll read you what a tragedy is. He quoted from a page of Reader's Digest, um, And he said, I don't know where I got it because I didn't subscribe. Piper remembers now. I must have found it in a doctor's office somewhere, but he had it. So he read to them, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. And there are people in this country... That are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it, and I get forty minutes to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you, uh, last as the last chapter before you stand before the Creator of the universe to give an account for what you did. Here it is, Lord. My shell collection, and I've got a good swing. Now look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Paul's last words to these these elders face-to-face. That's the message he's giving. Paul's life is an incredible picture of what it is, what it is like to fully enjoy life with Christ. His life was a series of disasters from the world's perspective, but it was a grand slam for the kingdom of Christ. Eternally focused because serving God is overwhelmingly worth it, overwhelmingly worth it. His final address, this message about the overwhelming worth of serving Christ tells us, don't waste your life. I'm going to danger and all this stuff. I'm so excited, so excited. There is nothing better, nothing better than serving Christ. Chase the eternal reward. Leave behind that which is going to rust. You can't take it with you. One of my favorite Switchfoot song quotes is All the riches of the kings end up in wills. Don't chase the shells. Chase Jesus. Only Jesus. Paul's encouragement to the elders in Ephesus. My encouragement to you. That same life of joyful service is available to us. And I pray that we are found as faithful when we get before Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, here is our life. Take it use it. We are yours, bought and paid for. Please, God, help us shed what hinders us in this race, God. Let us shed the weight of our old sinful life, that which you saved us from. Keep us from danger. Keep us dedicated to serving you, Father God. Help us learn from the examples of those who have come before us, Paul and Peter the apostles in the word and those main characters there, but also the faithful elders that we have here at this church, the shepherds that take such great care of us, defending us, preaching your word so faithfully. Please let us be hearers of your word, not just listeners, but active doers, God. Increase in us um, and minimize ourselves. We want you and your goal, God. We love you. Amen.